0: And please turn with me in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 9. We're returning to consider just the final verse uh, that we considered last week, verse 31. Last week we had begun uh, halfway through verse 19 and then uh, left off at the end of verse 31. And as I mentioned last week, I wanted to return to consider that final verse of our text last week in greater detail, simply because in this passage, the Lord Jesus Christ gives to the early church this wonderful time of reprieve. He gives to them this calm from Christ. Well, I'll begin our reading back in verse 26 to just consider some of the context, but then again we will focus this morning on verse thirty-one. And this is speaking about Saul after his conversion, picking up in verse 26. So let's give our careful attention now to the Word of God. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed among the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Amen. This is the word of God. Well, back in Acts chapter 5, I likened the experience of the early church to the way in which the waves of the ocean repeatedly break upon the shore, one right after another. At that point in the book of Acts, Peter and John had been arrested and threatened. And then the sin of Ananias and Sapphira threatened the church. And then after that, all of the apostles were arrested. They were severely beaten and they were further threatened regarding their preaching of Jesus Well, after that point in Acts chapter 5, we have seen that the the waves have just continued one right after another. Chapter 6 opened with a dangerous complaint arising within the church. And at the close of that chapter, Stephen was arrested. You know how he preached faithfully to the Sanhedrin, but then he was eventually stoned. Wave after wave after wave, the challenges to the church continued. Even after Stephen was stoned, Saul of Tarsus unleashed that incredible persecution onto the church. Well, here in our text, we finally witness this wonderful reprieve. This this is a contrast to what we have considered so far. Here we have the risen and exalted Jesus giving to his church a brief break so that they might catch their breath, so to speak. Here we see the church blessed with a calm from Christ. And so right from the outset, we need to see here that this calm is the way in which our risen Savior cares for his people here on earth. As we have noted all along the way, Jesus is with his people in what they have experienced. You just have to remember the way in which Jesus confronted Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus was telling to Saul of Tarsus that what the church experienced, the Lord Jesus experienced right along with them. Well, in our call to worship this morning, we were reminded of Isaiah's prophecy concerning Jesus Christ, who is our shepherd Who is the good shepherd? He said, He will tend to his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. Well, that is what we see here in our text. We see here the good shepherd risen and reigning, carefully and constantly caring for his flock. He was not only with them in their trials, but here he also provides this peace so that they might rest and so that they might recover. We would do well to consider uh, Ezekiel's prophecy concerning Christ as well. Listen to this text and what it says about the good shepherd. God's word says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down declares the Lord God I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak again that is what we see taking place here in verse 31 that is what we see taking place in our text the Lord Jesus Christ the good shepherd gives to his church precisely what they need And so in this season of life for the church, we need to ask the question, what is this calm for? What was this calm for? Why was this brief reprieve given to the church at this time? Well, God's answer to that question is in two parts. So first of all, this calm was to edify the church. His call was to edify his church. On Monday afternoon of last week, I went on a new hike with some friends. And since this hike was a new hike, none of us knew exactly what to expect. And we started out this hike with an immediate incline. And for three quarters of a mile, it just continued with an incline. Not only was there this steep incline, but the further on we went, that incline had gravel and loose rocks to impede our way. And so when we finally reached the end of that steep incline, we stopped and we paused. We stopped and we paused to catch our breath, and we stopped and we paused to turn around and to consider the vast landscape that was now beneath us and to appreciate all that we had just gone through together. Well, here in our text, that is what's going on with the early church. They have been through this time of a steep incline in the early church. And here the Lord Jesus brings them to a place where they can stop, where they can catch their breath, where they can appreciate everything that they have been through together and where they can prepare for what follows. And so we need to understand that this place of peace, it's purposeful. Here we need to see the watchful care of the good shepherd tending to his sheep. Here he makes the church to lie down in green pastures. Here he leads his church beside quiet waters. The church has already been through the valley of the shadow of death. We might think of Saul's persecution or Stephen's death. Well, here in our text is now the point where the Lord restores their souls. And so this pause is purposeful. And its purpose, first of all, is to edify, or boys and girls, to build up the church. That's what that word means. These times within the life of the church are an incredible blessing. These are a, a wonderful, rich gift given by God. And so the times of peace must not be wasted. Listen to what Calvin wrote about this time set aside for the church's edification. He said, this blessing is not a common blessing. Therefore, let us learn not to abuse external peace in banqueting or idleness, but let us learn instead the more rest that we have from our enemies to encourage ourselves to go forward in godliness while we may. And so the pause given to the church, it is purposeful. This peace is for the edification of the church. Well, brothers and sisters, we live in a time relatively speaking, of great peace. We do not face anything like the kinds of persecutions that we've already witnessed here in the book of Acts. Yes, the church will face trials of various kinds, but overall, we as a church in the United States have been given the most incredible time of peace. And so the question becomes, are we using it to grow in godliness Or are we wasting it in idleness or pleasure? How do we use this wonderful time of peace that we have been given by Christ for the edification of the church? How is it that the Lord Jesus Christ builds up his church? Well, asking those questions takes us to Ephesians chapter 4 because there the Lord Jesus teaches us by way of the Apostle Paul how it is that he builds up his church. And he does so in two ways. How does the risen Savior, how does our shepherd edify or build us up during these times of peace? Well, first of all, the Lord Jesus builds up the church by giving gifts to her. Citing Psalm 68, Ephesians 4 says this of Jesus, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Well, what are these gifts that the risen and ascended Christ gives to his church? Well, the text continues. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. There is the first way in which Christ edifies the church. As our ascended king, the Lord Jesus, builds us up, or as he edifies us, he does so first by giving the, pro- the, the pastors and teachers. He gives pastors and teachers to the church that by way of the minist- their ministry, the church will be built up. And so think about the B- book of Acts. During this brief period of peace, During this time of reprieve, the church was built up by Christ through all of these various gifts that he had given to the church. Well, the same thing is true for us today. Although we don't have prophets and prophets today, the Lord continues to provide pastors and teachers as a primary means of building up his church. So that is the first way that the Lord edifies or builds us up. But then second... The Lord Jesus builds up the church by her own service within the church or by each individual member's partnership in the church. Listen to how Paul continues there in verse or Ephesians chapter 4. He writes about there how we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Did you catch the second part that the Lord Jesus gives to the church for her own edification? Not only does our risen and exalted Savior give us pastors and teachers so that we will be built up, but he also employs the gifts and the service of the whole body for the edification of the church. So think about the original context. What do you think this looked like in Jerusalem? Well, on the gifts side of the equation, it looked like the apostles faithfully teaching the word of God, faithfully expounding upon the whole counsel of God. But then on the giving or the service side of the equation, it looked like each member of the church working properly, as Paul puts it there in Ephesians 4, to edify each other. Well, the text that we read has a great example of this. No doubt, the apostles were faithfully teaching the word of God to the saints in Jerusalem. But then, as we read in our text, it zeroes in into that man named Barnabas. And as we considered last week, we see this one man employing the gifts that God has given to him to become Saul's encouragement so that Saul will be welcomed into the church and spend the rest of his life ministering to the church. There we saw last week how one part of the body engages himself to work properly to serve the church. And his simple encouragement was amazingly monumental. So what should that look like here at Black Forest Reformed Church? Well, it looks like that wonderful partnership that we considered all the way back in Acts chapter 6. It looks like the church guarding its priority regarding the ministry of the word and prayer. But then it also looks like the entire church engaging in its God-given partnership that Christ has ordained for the church. To use the words of Ephesians 4, it looks like the whole body... Every joint and each part working properly so that the body grows and builds itself up in love. You're wondering, how do I do that? Where do I fit in? What part do I play in the life of the body? Well, let's go to the Word of God to get an answer to those questions. Consider some of the one another commands given to us in Scripture love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Be like-minded toward one another. Accept one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear the burdens of one another. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Be patient with one another. Speak the truth in love. Submit to one another. Consider others more important than yourselves. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Look to the interests of one another. Encourage one another. Teach one another. Comfort one another. Stir up one another to love and good works. Show hospitality to one another. Employ the gifts given to serve one another and clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, and finally pray for one another. That's not even an exhaustive list, but these are the ways in which God teaches us how to employ our gifts, each of you, each of you, each part, to build up the church together in love. I want to encourage you today to take some time to meditate on 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read this portion of God's word for us. I think naturally we tend to think of our own families in the way that Paul describes the church in 1 Corinthians 12. We tend to think of our own natural families in this way. But here in God's word, Paul is teaching us to think of this group, this body in this way. He writes... As He chose if all were a single member where would the body be as it is there are many parts yet one body Again, this is how we are to think of the body of Christ one another Paul continues saying The eye cannot say to the hand. I have no need of you nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you On the contrary the parts of the body that we that seem to be weaker are indispensable All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Again, I want you to meditate on this portion of God's word and think do I relate to my church family in this way? Again, I think we naturally and easily think of our natural families in this way, but God says you are a part of an eternal family, which means you are always needed and always needy. You cannot say, my gifts do not need to be used in this church. That is not true. Nor can you say, I don't need the gifts exercised by everyone else in this body. No, the Lord Jesus here talks about each part being formed and arranged and purposed by him. And it is only as we utilize our gifts that we will build up one another in love. Brothers and sisters, we enjoy a great deal of freedom and peace as a church, and so we need to use this peace to go forward in godliness. Why is Christ given to us this extended season of peace? Well, it is for our edification. It is for the building up of the body. It is so that we will be built up through this time of peace. So pray both for the preaching and teaching ministry of the church. Pray for those gifts that the risen Christ gives to his church. But then also pray for the proper working of each part of the body. For it is as these gifts are employed in the life of the church that we will build ourselves up in love. The peace was purposeful. It was so that the church would be built up. It was so that the church would be edified, but there's more. There is a second purpose in all of this. So second, we see that Christ gave this peace to multiply his church. First, to edify his church. Second, to multiply his church. Our text ends with just those two words, it multiplied, or the church multiplied. So during this time of peace, the church was first of all edified, it was built up, but then being built up, because it was being built up, it also multiplied. So how did it happen? How did the Lord Jesus multiply the early church? Why did the church multiply? Well, our text highlights two parts. First of all, the text tells us that the church was walking in the fear of the Lord. And so that begs two questions. First of all, what is this fear of the Lord? And then second, what does it mean to walk in the fear of the Lord? Well, The beginning of the book of Jonah contains a story that illustrates for us the fear of the Lord well. Throughout the beginning of the book of Jonah, it uses only one word for fear, but it describes a fear that is not the fear of the Lord at first, and then second, a fear that becomes the fear of the Lord. Early in the chapter, the sailors fear this great storm that has swept over them because they know that that storm could destroy them. They are afraid of the storm. They fear it. The text actually says that they fear with great fear. Well, that is not the fear of the Lord. That is just fear. But then, as you know the story, when God suddenly calms the storm, the text says of those sailors that they begin to fear with a great fear. Well, that is actually the fear of the Lord. Finally, as, the Lord, or as God exercises that power, His power for their salvation, their fear turns from a fear of the storm to fear of the merciful might of God that has suddenly delivered them out of that storm. You see, again, it is the same word used to describe fear in both parts. That fear first directed to the storm was not the fear of the Lord, but when they saw that merciful might of God work on their behalf, suddenly those sailors stood in the fear of the Lord. Well, that is the kind of fear that we see here in our text, and I think it may be helpful to simply think about Saul on his road or on his way to Damascus. Jesus suddenly stood before Saul in that blinding light. And he said in a powerful voice to Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Imagine the fear that filled Saul's heart when he stood before the risen Christ in power and he was asking him, why are you persecuting me? Suddenly Saul had a newfound sense of his own sin and guilt before God. And so no doubt he feared the wrath of God. But then the Lord Jesus used his mercy and his might to powerfully save Saul, to deliver him from that wrath that he deserved. And so suddenly, in a few moments, Saul went from having a fear of God's wrath to standing in awe before the sovereign grace of God. That is what it means to fear the Lord. So then ask the question, what does it mean to walk in the fear of the Lord? Well, one's walk is simply one's way of life. And so when our text says that the church was walking in the fear of the Lord, it was, it's saying that day by day, hour by hour, the church was walking in awe before the sovereign grace of God. They were living out their lives knowing that they had been powerfully and unchangeably reconciled to God. And so they lived with this conscious reverence before God. Well, second, our text then says that they were walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. These two parts, they were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16... Jesus is preparing his disciples for the fact that he is going to die and then depart. And their hearts are stirred up with fear. And Jesus says, no, listen, it is to your advantage that I go away. The question naturally is like, how could that be good? Lord Jesus, why would it be good if you were to go away? Well, Jesus says, it's because I'm going to send to you the helper. I'm going to give to you my spirit. And Jesus says specifically, he will glorify me. He will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. Well, here in our text, we now see the disciples. We see the early church walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it is powerful. Walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit is walking in the comfort of Christ. And particularly, walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit is walking in the comfort of the risen and reigning Christ. Remember, these believers have just been through an intense time of persecution. And during this time of reprieve, they are now particularly blessed by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Well, primarily, as you look upon the work of the Holy Spirit in the word of God, you see that the Holy Spirit's aim is to exalt Jesus Christ. And that is what he is doing here in the hearts of these saints. The Holy Spirit was taking what belongs to the risen Savior, and he was powerfully applying it to the hearts and souls of these believers The Holy Spirit was exalting the hearts of these early Christians with Christ. We see these believers now walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit because right now they have received and they are walking in the Spirit of the risen Christ. Think about Jesus and the way in which He prepared the ministry of the Holy Spirit particularly for the believers who would trust in him following his ascension. Both the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit are experienced by these believers because of their union with the resurrected Christ. First of all, think about Jesus in his earthly ministry. Isaiah chapter 11 says this of Jesus. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord rested upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. It says, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. When the Spirit descended upon Jesus, We see in that combination of Christ walking in the Spirit that he walked in the fear of the Lord. But then we need to go on to consider the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You know how at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him powerfully like a dove. It rested upon him, and then Jesus walked out his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so hour by hour, day by day, the Lord Jesus Christ was depending upon the spirit. When he faced temptation in the wilderness, he was depending upon the spirit and so used the word of God to fight temptation. He endured all temptation in dependence upon the spirit. He looked to his Father constantly in dependence upon the Spirit. He loved and he served and he cared in his ministry in dependence upon the Spirit. And now, from his place of exaltation in glory, he now indwells every believer with that same Spirit. That is why we see these believers at Acts 9.31 walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It is because Jesus walked with and by that Spirit in his ministry and now he bestows richly that Spirit upon everyone who believes. This is why something significant happened at the day of Pentecost. Sometimes people will say believers didn't have the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. That's not true. Psalm 51, David speaks of how he has the Holy Spirit. But we know that there was a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. So how is it greater? Well, the answer is it is greater because that is now the Spirit of the risen and exalted Christ. This is the spirit that walked Christ through his journey each and every step of the way. This is a spirit that has been particularly prepared to walk you, his saints, through this world every step of the way. Dear saints, think upon this today. You have the inexpressible gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And this is the spirit of the risen and exalted Christ. It is only because you have the spirit of Christ that you can cry out saying, Abba, Father. It is because the spirit testifies with your own spirit that you know you are the children of God. It is because you have the Spirit that you believe the Word of God. It is because you have the Spirit that you trust upon Christ completely and you know that your, soul, your sins have been forgiven. It is only by way of the Holy Spirit that you can walk in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It is because you have the Spirit of the risen Christ that you can now walk confidently before God. When you face temptation, you need to realize and rely upon the fact that the spirit that was with Christ in the wilderness to resist temptation is now with you as you face temptation. When you face trial or challenge in this life, you need to realize and and rely upon the fact that the same Spirit who was with Christ each and every step of His journey is now with you so that you can follow in His footsteps, so that you can trust and depend upon Him by faith, I want you to take time today and this week to explore and to meditate upon what it means that you have the spirit of the risen Christ dwelling within you. Just consider all of the various gifts that the Holy Spirit has from Christ to give to you. You could do this in three ways. You could read the gospels to see the way in which Jesus has gone before you. You can see the way in which Jesus relied upon that Spirit in order to prepare that ministry of the Holy Spirit for you. You could do so by singing the Psalms or reading the Psalms. You could see the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ relied upon the Spirit to walk through each and every season of life. And then finally, you could read the epistles, particularly Paul's epistles. Because Paul will time and time again say, in Christ, or in Him. And he is trying to bring to the forefront of our experience the fact that we are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. Consider some of the things that the Apostle Paul says just in Ephesians chapter 1 regarding What you have in your union with Christ. Beginning at verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, Paul begins saying that you have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's all of them right there. You have already been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So what are some of those? Well, he goes on. He says, you have been chosen in him from before the foundation of the world, that you will be holy and blameless before God. Do you live your life in light of what you have dwelling within you from the Spirit? Paul goes on there to say, you have been adopted as sons in him. You have that very spirit of adoption. You have redemption in him. You have the forgiveness of your sins. You have an inheritance in him that is eternal, undefiled, and incorruptible. You have been sealed with this Holy Spirit. Because of the Spirit, you now have communion with the living God through Jesus Christ. You have mercy and peace. You have growth and grace. You have, again, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Twice to the Corinthians, Paul asks, Do you not know that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you? And he asks that question rhetorically as if to say, Brothers and sisters, we are, are but beginning to understand and to appreciate what it means to have and to live in light of the spirit of the risen Christ. So consider today what it means that you have dwelling within you as you trust in Christ, the spirit of the risen Christ. Well, as the church was given this calm from Christ, they were built up. Through the ministry of the word and through the ministry of every part working properly. And as the church considered, experienced, and enjoyed the ministry of the Holy Spirit within their midst, it multiplied. Why did the church multiply? Because the church was enjoying and living in light of all that they had in Christ. This again as we have already considered, is the careful shepherding work of King Jesus. He tends to his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arm. He carries them in his bosom. And he gently leads those who are with young. So brothers and sisters, let us pray regarding the peace that we presently enjoy. Let us pray according to God's word that we will be both edified and multiplied through it. Pray for the ministry of this church, for the preaching and teaching ministry of this church, but also for the membership of this church, the ministry of the membership of this church. Pray that we will be built up together in love. And then pray confidently and expectantly for the ministry of the Holy Spirit among us that we will walk together in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Pray for these things confidently and expectantly because the Lord Jesus himself said that he will build the church. Let's pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for the way in which you are the good shepherd. We thank you for how you minister to us appropriately according to our need. We thank you that you give to your people times of peace. We thank you for this Lord's Day, which is a time of peace within our busy weeks. Lord God, we do pray for us as a congregation. We pray that you would utilize this time of peace for our edification and for our multiplication. Lord God, we desire these things for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. And so we come asking according to your promise that you will build your church. And so we pray this all now in the name of Christ. Amen.